0: Um, last night, as you know, we spoke about, we talked about what it means to have true victory in Christ. And we settled on that true victory in Christ ultimately comes in the knowledge that he um, has sustained us, that he has overcome the final enemy, the, the great enemy, um, not just being our sin, but also ourselves. And we know that we should not be um, delusioned by the things that we see in this world, but that there is an eternal hope. And so knowing that, knowing that we have true victory in Christ overall, today we're going to talk about what it means to stay the course, to stay the course. That is the title of this morning's sermon. Knowing that we have been redeemed, that we are um, eternally secured, how do we as believers stay the course? And so, you know, what a wonderful way to start a denial sermon by mentioning the five points of Calvinism. So if you don't know <laughs> the five points of Calvinism, I am reformed, by the way, like severely reformed. So uh, <laughs> so those five points of Calvinism are total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, and irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints. Um, the The last one, though, is the one we're going to deal with today, and it's probably the one that, if you are a believer, that gives us the most hope. Now, I know you know middle schoolers and high schoolers are not necessarily pondering all their theological perspectives, but I think this one is actually a really good one to ponder. The perseverance of the saints, and what it means is that those of us who are saved, those of us who are redeemed by God, will stay in the faith. That is what it means. Now, while this is comforting, it is also one of those things that identifies a false conversion in someone's life. It's one of those things that people wrestle with where I knew some people that were in the faith for a number of years and then they backslid. There's no such thing as an individual backsliding. In fact, the only time backsliding is mentioned in the Bible is in reference to Israel's rebellion. So there's no such thing as you being a believer and then not being a believer. The most common occurrence is that the person was never converted in the first place. If the promise of the word of God is that those of us, as the song just said, who belong to him cannot be taken out of his hand, then that means that anyone who can be taken out of his hand was never in his hand. So then it does make us all have to look a little bit introspectively and assess our lives to ensure that we are, in fact, in the faith. In fact, we are actually commanded in the scripture that we should examine ourselves. And that examination is to make sure that we are really believers, that we are really in the faith. Now, performing these types of self-examinations are not the means of our salvation, but rather they are the tests of our salvation. So the question is, how do we stay the course? That's the task. So we're going to look today at Colossians chapter 2. And we're going to start in verse 4 to understand what it means to really stay the course. Colossians 2 and 4. Paul writes, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray. Lord God, this is um, an amazing time to share the word, but it is also an amazing time, God, for us to perform these self-examinations, God, to really put our faith to the test, to listen to the word and hear what it means to be a believer, what it means to be secure in you, God. If, there are anybody, if there's anybody in here who doesn't know you and is under the illusion of faith, God, we don't want them to be duped. We want them to know that they are not in the faith. But God, if there are people, and I know there are who are in the faith, We want them to be reaffirmed and find comfort in knowing that their eternity has been secured and fixed in you, and that because we are believers, you are giving us a course, and we must do everything we can diligently through the power of the Spirit to stay on that path. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so as Paul writes here, he writes his letter to the church at Colossae, and There are some things that he is obviously trying to combat as he's writing here. So, there had been this influx of people who were subscribing to something called Gnosticism. And, you know, I know that may not be something you all know about, but you have heard the word before. It's one of those words that we're probably pronouncing wrong because we pronounce it agnostic, but the G is silent in the word Gnostic, so it's probably agnostic. I'm probably the only person in the world who pronounced that way, by the way. But it is this idea that there is some being that created everything, that we are the product of some kind of creator, but that that creator cannot be fully known or revealed. And so they subscribe to what is known as the Gnostic gospel, and it was actually spreading around in this area. And Paul knew and identified the fact that this was a false gospel, but that it was also a threat to people in that community who were actually believers. He says that he is saying this in order that no one may trick you, but he says that no one will trick you with arguments that seem reasonable. Arguments about the faith that seem plausible. I think sometimes we tend to think that when these types of threats and attacks come against the faith, come against doctrinal truth, we always think that we're going to know that it's obviously false. But that actually goes against the whole way that Satan attempts to deceive us. Remember, when he appears to Jesus while Jesus is fasting, he actually quotes scripture out of context at Jesus. Satan's attempts to attack and thwart the Lord's work come from a seemingly rational place. The Bible, by the way, says that Satan does not present himself as, you know, this demon with horns, but that he presents himself as an angel, but one of light. Now, many of us think that we are not as willing to be receptive to this type of teaching that we're not so easily deceived by false teaching. But that's what makes Satan deceitful. Right. Is that these false gospels seem true. And I want you to think about how our world, even today, so easily deceives and often it deceives in what is in the name of like humanity. In the name of rights, in the name of social justice, in the name of blackness, in the name of whiteness, in the name of feminism. All those things are clothing of false gospel. Rationally, one actually may say two people should be married and they should be able to get married. And anyone who is in love should be treated like anyone else. Now, blindly, that principle, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. But then when you start adding all these variables, right, who should be able to get married? What kind of people should be able to get married? Same gender people should be able to get married. Well, then it starts to contradict biblical truth. And if the theology contradicts biblical truth, it is a false gospel. It starts off as, I think it's rational, for two people to live together before they get married, so they can really, you know, get to know each other. Marriage really is, you know, just a social construct after all. The whole of what you believe gets turned upside down, and it's subtle. And Satan so cleverly and easily weaves himself in. And so how do we stay the course? The first point for today is walk in the truth. The way that you say the course is that you actually walk in the truth. Paul says here, because you received Christ the Lord, walk in him. But this is actually where most of us struggle. I know I'm supposed to walk in him, but how do I walk in him? In Proverbs, there is a warning against adultery, and it actually gives some ways to avoid it. It says, my son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. He writes that. That the way you keep teachings is to walk in them by binding them on your heart. Where many professing Christians go wrong is that the words of God go from their ears to their lips, but it never touches the heart. He says in his proverb that you should bind them on your neck. Culturally, they would adorn themselves with jewelry, but they would also adorn themselves with these little boxes that kept instructions and reminders about things that they were to do, things that they were not to do. And he says, not only have the word in your heart, but use it. Therefore, when you walk, it will guide you. It will be with you while you sleep. And when you awake, the word will speak to you. The words will be. Lamps and light to your path. In other words, the way we walk in the truth is that we have to absolutely saturate ourselves in the word of God. But this is the unfortunate reality. Many Christians, air quoting as hard as I possibly can, many Christians have an on-again, off-again relationship with the word. When I need it, when I'm in distress, I'm on. I listen to sermons. I study more. I fellowship more with other believers. But when I'm complacent, comfortable, when things are going well, I'm off again. I have arrived. I have more important things to do than that. So I don't need the word as much in my life. But these are actually the times that we don't think we need the word, that we're actually the most vulnerable. That is why we are admonished by Paul to put on the whole armor of God so that we can stand against the schemes of Satan, withstanding the evil day and standing firm. Listen. I never served in the military. I am the son of two military parents, so I was told, do not serve in the military. But if I had, I don't think I would have been wearing the type of armor that they're describing here. It gives me very much medieval vibes, breastplates, swords, you know. But I do know that if you are in a war... You are not only wise to wear your armor and keep your weaponry weaponry when you see the enemy. In fact, you better be even more prepared when you don't know where the enemy is. If I realize that I am at war and there is an adversary, then his absence should make me guard myself even more because that means that he is somewhere planning to attack where I feel safe. I want you to think about your own life. Look at how many times you have fallen into sin just because you thought that it was an appropriate time to let your guard down. Just because you thought you had strung together some good days and, 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 you know, I, I really can just go on that Google search. I really can just hang out with that person and then There's this guilt and repentance because you didn't stay the course. In those moments of desperation, though, I want you to look how afraid you are to sin against God because you need God to do something. Something maybe as frivolous as passing a test. And you're so afraid to sin against God. But something as serious as a family member being diagnosed with cancer, and you don't want your sin to be the thing that leads them to die. And you're so afraid to do anything that would offend God. But also, in those moments of complacency, how often sin does creep into your life, how comfortable you are to walk away from the truths of God. So if the first way we say the course is walking in the truth, then the second way that we say the course is that we have to reject lies. We have to reject lies. Every morning, I was doing it this morning, I get on this Bible study and I, I call them my older friends, but they, they are just old. Like they're not older, they're old. Like I'm severely like just like a lot younger, like the median age of this Bible study has to be 75 and then it's me, 30-year-old Brandon, you know. And so, you know, I was on this morning on the way here. We Zoom, and it's like 25 of us a lot. And because they're older, they get some, you know, they all have landlines, of course, you know, because they're all over 75. Y'all probably don't even know what a landline is. But they have landlines. And if you don't know anything, I used to be a banker. One thing that happens with, with people who have landlines, you almost always know they're old. And so there are always, like, these money-grabbing schemes, and they call people's landlines because they know some old person's going to answer. And they always pretend to be, like, this person's grandchild or something, like, hey, this is your grandson. I know I sound a little weird. It's because I was in a car accident, and I'm in jail, and it's like, I need you to go get 1,000 gift cards from Walmart and come bail me out of jail. Like, makes no sense whatsoever, but this, these are the schemes, I'm telling you. And so one of the guys, Doug, who is in his late 70s, got a call. And it was exactly just like that. Like this guy called him, said he was his grandson. Problem is, guy had a Hispanic accent. Um, Doug is white. So um, there were some issues, you know, in translation there. And so, you know, he hears them. And he immediately goes, he's like, you are not my grandson. Who are you? And he says, you don't sound like him. You are not my grandson. Like I know you're not. And, of course, it was one of those scam calls where they were trying to get his money. But how does he know that immediately that the guy is lying? Yeah, because the guy had a Hispanic accent. That's one reason. But he also knows and has a relationship with his grandson. He knew him, and that knowledge of him was preventing him from believing a lie. On our journey, we are going to hear and be told so many lies regarding the truth, regarding the Bible. And it's not always as easy to distinguish between what is true and what is a lie. And Paul says that we should not be taken captive by these types of lies and false truths. And we have to see to it that we don't. Well, how do we do that? To start. Do you actually know the Lord the way Doug knew his grandson and had a relationship and could distinguish his voice from anybody else's? Can you distinguish the truth and the voice of God from every other false gospel? Why is that important? Because the Bible actually tells us that. The real, true believers, no matter how much Satan tries to deceive us, that we actually can't be fooled. That the real believers actually cannot be deceived. He says that Satan would, if he could, fool and deceive the very elect. The problem is, is that he can't. Jesus also says that his sheep know his voice and another shepherd, they're not going to follow. He also says that there are many antichrists who are going out and they would try to lead the elect astray, but are going to be unsuccessful. So that means if I am in right relationship with Jesus, then the first sign of sin, the first sign of a false gospel should make me think, no, that's not my shepherd. No, he wouldn't say something like that. We have been told to hide the word in our hearts so that we would not sin against it. So while your tattooed verse may look cool, is it actually tattooed on your heart? A casual relationship with Jesus doesn't exist. It just doesn't. And I've heard people use terms like nominal Christians. That's an oxymoron. There's no such thing as a nominal Christian. So, how do we get to the point where I can walk in the truth, know the words to such a degree that I can distinguish between the truth and lies? This third and final point you have to develop good spiritual habits. It's simple, you have to develop good spiritual habits the most common reason for spiritual immaturity and it doesn't matter the age of the person it doesn't matter if you're old, you're old or you're young the most common reason for spiritual immaturity whether the believer is old or young is that they do not have good spiritual disciplines spiritual disciplines best way I can describe it are like workouts for your spirit it's conditioning for your walk with the Lord and where most people suffer is that when they are attempting to walk out their relationship with God, they're actually just spiritually weak. They have not built up strength in the faith. So I mentioned yesterday, you know, I get up every morning at 3.30 in the morning. Austin mentioned he got one of my very early morning texts because I have no gauge of what time it is ever in the morning. But more importantly than me getting up and working out my body, the first thing I do consistently every morning is I wake up, first thing I do is pray. I just pray. Because I just went unconscious for like four hours. So I had no idea what was going on in my life. Anything could have happened, but God preserved me. So I'm just thanking him. And I ask him every day before anything, just make me better than the day before. I am full of sin. I sinned the day before. Just make me better today than the day I was, than the, than the way I was before. And right after that, I started listening to a sermon. And lately, I've been listening to Alice the Beg like every morning. I fill it up with some other people. But there's nothing better. If you don't know who Alice the Begg is, he's a Scottish guy. He's in Ohio. It's a great accent to hear when you're in the morning. It's like lulling you right into all this gospel truth. And then right after that, I do a few devotional reps. I've been going through the book of Psalms through a church called Doxa Church in Madison, Wisconsin. And I listen to that. And then when I get done with that, I close it out by journaling. And about that time, it's about six o'clock now. (laughs) Oh, and by the way, I like do workouts in between that time. But this is the thing. I want you to understand this. I don't do any of those things because I'm this super pious dude. I don't do any of those things because I'm like super righteous and me and the Lord are like really tight and and I, I don't deal with anything. I actually do it Because I'm an incredibly weak man. I do it because my natural self is so sinful that my flesh and my thoughts and my heart is so dark apart from Him. It is so at odds with God that if I don't strengthen my spirit, I'm certain to atrophy. Now, if you ask me, I would tell you that there are many mornings, almost every morning, I don't feel like doing any of that stuff. Most of the time, I feel like just listening to like a Patriots podcast or doing something else frivolous, like doing something that, yeah, that'll really get me going. Most of the time, I don't want to listen to a sermon. I don't want to pray. I want to do a devotional. I want to journal. And a lot of times, when I don't feel like doing it, it feels moot. But this is the thing. My relationship with God is not predicated off what I feel. It is based on what I know. And if I got the same discipline to get up and go to the gym, even when I don't feel like it. I'm still seeing the results. If I commit myself to these spiritual disciplines, even when I don't feel like it. I'll still see the results. I don't feel like it, but it doesn't mean that I'm not being sanctified. So when we study, when we read, when we pray, if you have to commit yourself to do it and force yourself to do it, and you feel like it is such a struggle, there will be results. And it will grow to the point that you can almost feel yourself slipping when you don't do those things. And so my question for you, and you should probably ask yourself this question, what are your spiritual disciplines? What do they look like? Do you think there is a direct connection to your attempts to remain on the journey and in the course and also the amount of sin that creeps into your life? Can you look back at a disconnection between your spiritual disciplines, between your faithfulness to the the scriptures? If you are a teenager and you are a Christian already, then you've got a long way to go. And while being converted at an early age is a beautiful and wonderful thing, that means that is a longer time that sanctification is going to have to take place in your life. There are going to be all types of distractions. There are going to be missteps and mistakes and blatant sins in your life. And you're going to fall. You are going to give in. But if you can start cultivating right now a life and a love for God, then you will certainly minimize the impact that sin has on your life. Paul reminds us in our original text that because Jesus was crucified, we have been buried with him. Our dark and dead deeds have been entombed. If that is the case, that in his death I died to my sins, then that also must mean that in his resurrection we have been given the power to walk in a manner worthy of, of him. No, not a single one of us. The Bible makes it clear. None seeks after him. None is righteous. No, not one. So any ability you have to work out your salvation, to develop spiritual disciplines, as Spurgeon said, is all of grace. None of us has the ability within ourselves to stay the course. Or do anything that I've talked about today. And so as you think about, all right, I want to discipline my life. I want to develop these spiritual habits. I want you to be sure. Do not think that you can will that to happen in your own strength. If you are not a Christian, you may absolutely be able to get up and discipline yourself enough to read the Bible. You may be able to discipline yourself enough to listen to worship music. But for it to actually have a transforming and sanctifying impact on your life, you must be saved. And that sanctification only happens because of the guarantee that we have been given through the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word. We thank you, God, that you have given us the means of grace, God, that for those of us who know you, that you are sanctifying us through your word. You are sanctifying us. You are giving us what we need, the spiritual disciplines, the spiritual habits. But God, for those of us who don't know you, those things are going to be moot. They're going to be Frivolous and mean nothing. And, you know, my prayer, God, if there's anyone in here who is trying to will themselves to righteousness, trying to will themselves to sanctification, trying to will themselves to salvation, God, that you would reveal to them that there is nothing that they can do in their own strength to be saved, to be right. But that, God, that the only works that we are saved by are the works of Jesus Christ on the cross. But God, for those of us who do know you, help us, give us what we need to develop good spiritual habits, to walk in the truth, to reject the lies, and to develop those spiritual disciplines that we need to stay the course. It's in Jesus' name we pray.